0: <clears throat> Hello everybody, welcome back. This week is Parashas Kaisai, and we the topic we're going to be discussing is the Halachas of Yantiv, preparing for Shavuos. Uh, there was a mistake on the first topic. This is the actual topic. Halachas of Yantiv, preparing for Shavuos next week. Uh, there won't be this conference call because everybody's busy preparing for Yantiv. <clears throat> so... When preparing for shvuz, a big question that always arises is how to use an oven for both dairy and meat. So when you're in the preparation mode before yantiv itself, when I mean just cooking for yantiv, the good news is that it's not that difficult and doesn't require a self-clean cycle in between dairy and meat. All that needs to be done is to turn the oven onto its highest, usually whatever it is, 500, 550, and let it burn out for about... 45 minutes to an hour. If you're short on time, it can be a little less, but about that long. And then you're good to go. So then, that's nothing to talk about if you do that. You most certainly can use the oven, first milk eggs, then flesh eggs, or flesh eggs, then milk eggs, if you burn it out in between, not a problem. Now, that option, though, is only available before Yontif. On Yontif itself, one can't kasher their oven. So what can you do then if you need to use your oven both for one meal milk higgs and another meal flesh how are you going to pull that off? And also, these, what we're going to say now, also will apply if you don't want to have it, burn out the oven. There's a way to use it for milk and fleshig without burning it out as well, which is how you're going to do it on Yantiv, and that's as follows. You can use one oven for both dairy and for flay as long as you follow these rules. If the food is covered and the oven rack, which the pan is on, is clean, then you're fine. So that means your oven can be fleshy. You just used it to, to heat up chicken uncovered or meat uncovered that afternoon. And then on the following night of Yantiv, you want to warm up lasagna. As long as the lasagna is covered, not a problem. And even if the silver foil opens a little bit and some steam escapes, not a problem. So number one is that as long as the wrong kind is covered, which means the oven is flay and you're cu- you're cooking something milchig, as long as you cover it, you're okay. Another way that it's not a problem is if what you're heating up is something that's totally dry, like a kugel, a quiche, and it's dry it doesn't you know it's not no, no not liquidy at all then that can even be done uncovered in a flechig oven, and it doesn't become fleshig, It retains its status as parav or dairy, whatever it is, and you can use it for dairy meal. So there's two ways you can use the wrong kind of oven. The fleshig oven for something dairy is either if the dairy thing is going to be covered or if it's by definition a dry thing, then it's not a problem. Another thing that comes up is are you allowed to use blenders and mixers, which are typically parva? Are you allowed to use them for dairy you want to make a dairy cake or a dairy, whatever it is, can you use these blenders and, pa- and mixers which you really want to keep of. So the truth is that generally whatever dairy thing we're going to be preparing with blenders and mixers are cold. And generally, a is that if it's cold, there's absolutely no problem. Nevertheless, it's advised not to switch off one kind of utensil from one thing to the next. So You're not really supposed to switch off from of to milichic to milichic to power However, here where we're talking about a once one-time-a-year event, where it's only when you cook for Shavuos that you need to use them for Milchig, then that's okay. It's rare. But on a regular basis, if you were to always want to make Milchig and Parav, Milchig and Parav, then you should be buying yourself two sets of uh, mixers or whatever it is that you want to use. One thing, though, is very important to keep in mind throughout all the preparations for Yantiv and, you know, is to be careful when you're cutting onion and sauteing onion or cutting garlic and sauteing garlic to be sure that it's going to match whatever it is you're using it for. Meaning, if you, the best, actually, the best thing to do would be to try to be mock to cut them with a power of a knife so that they stay power of, and likewise to saute them in a power of a pan if you have that. This way they stay power of, and then you can choose to use them for milk or flechig, whatever you want. But one thing you for sure should avoid is don't cut them with a fleshig knife and then saute them in a milchig pot. Then you're going to be in trouble. This is one of the few situations which really can cause trouble in the kitchen. An onion always, whatever you do, whether the cutting and the frying both change its status. So if you cut it with a fleshing knife, it becomes fleshig. If you fry, or fry it with a milchig frying pan, it becomes milchig. If you do both, it's price. So that's very important to become, to be careful with when it comes to onions. Make sure if you're going to be doing it milchig, make sure everything is milchig. If you're going to be doing it for um, fleshig, make sure everything is fleshig. And obviously the best is to keep it power and then you can use it for whatever you want. As far as having a milchig meal on Shavuos, the minic is to eat dairy on Shavuos. There's a couple of reasons for this either, the most well-known reason, even though it's not really the main reason, but the most well, well-known reason is that the Jews, immediately after matan Torah they, they ate dairy. Why? Because they didn't have the ability to properly prepare flesh It takes a lot of work to make something flesh kosher. You have to shecht it, you have to salt it, you have to take out all the parts that can't be eaten, and you have to cashier kalem, etc., etc. Whereas dairy is kind of straightforward, it's simple, you can eat it as is. The truth is that according to some opinions, math and took place on Shabbat. And if it took place on Shabbat, then you certainly didn't, weren't able to do any prep. Can't on Shabbat? that's chol Shabbat. So that's another reason why they would have had to eat dairy simply because nothing else could be prepared. Another reason we eat dairy is because the Torah is compared to milk. But here's the interesting thing. The way the minig is brought down by the Ramah and Shulchan Aruch is a whole different reason. And few people actually do it this way. But what he says to do is that you should eat dairy and fleixigs in the same meal, namely the first day meal. First day of meal, which is Sunday morning, Sunday day meal should be eaten both dairy, start with dairy, and then switch to flesh in the middle of the meal. What's the reason for that? So he says, because the carbon in the of Mikdash that was brought on that day was a very unique carbon. It was called a Shtei HaLachem. It was two sheep, and they were brought with two loaves of bread. And those two, those two loaves of bread were eaten by the Kehanim. So to symbolize those two loaves, we eat dairy and meat. Why? Because there's a halacha, that when you eat dairy, you use one loaf of bread. You can't use that loaf of bread which is on the table with dairy meal for a meat meal. So then when you switch the meal in the middle to meat, you have to bring out a new loaf of bread. Hence, you have two loaves of bread, one that was, was used for the dairy part of the meal and one that was used for the fleshy part of the meal. So you have the shteh represented. This is what the ramah says is the reason for this minig to eat dairy and to do it in this specific way. But, the halacha, actually, that the Ramah is teaching us is very important, that you can't reuse the challah that you had by the dairy meal for the non-dairy meal, for the meat meal. Whatever challah was used by the dairy meal needs to be kept for dairy or parv only. Whatever challah was used by the meat meal needs to be kept for meat, which is relevant not only on Shavuos, it's all year. You can't make French toast from leftover challah if it was on the table with the meat. Now sometimes what people do is that they cut whatever challah they want for the meal and then the whatever the big piece of challah, you know, big half of challah that's left, they take off the table. That's fine. But if it was cut up and it was on the table throughout while meat was being served, then it's a halacha, it cannot be used for milchik. Moving on to yontiv, although we know cooking is permitted on yontiv, it's not permitted to use electricity and it's not permitted to light a fire from new unless you're lighting from an existing flame. So when using an oven or a range on yantiv, it depends. If it's gas, so the fire must be left on from before each Shabbos or yantiv, and certainly if it's electric, it has to be on. When you light Neris as well, LeCovid yantiv, you have to light them from an existing flame. So if you have a gas range, that's easy, but if not, everybody has to remember to prepare a yardside candle, which burns long enough, you need like a three-day one. It burns long enough so that you can light your candles from that. And this year, we make Havdalah during Kiddush on the first night, just as we did on Pesach. So the first night of Shavuos, which is Matzah Shabbos, we make Havdalah, so you have to have a candle prepared for that as well. Yes. If your yardside candle goes out, which is a common occurrence, you'll have to get a light from a neighbor. And uh, that's a little tricky, but basically that's, that's really the only option that that's available uh, you can if, if that's not available we can talk but that typically that's really the best thing to do you're not permitted to extinguish a flame on Yantiv. so when lighting your candles you can use one candle to light the other or you can use a third candle to light them however you want to do it but you can't put out any candles you can't put out whatever it is you're using to light them with likewise the candle you're going to be used for using for Havdala, you have to understand you're going to leave that candle to burn down till the bottom so you don't use a typical Havdala candle cuz you're not going to be you're not going to be able to put it out Another application of not extinguishing a flame on Yontiv is when again only this is only relevant if you have a gas oven if you want to lower the flame on your range under a soup or something. So lowering a flame is really considered extinguishing. But at the same time, people don't want their gas flame on high for the whole yantus. So there is a loophole leniency, which is that you can lower a flame if it's going to burn your food. So if the flame is under a soup pot or some other dish, don't remove the soup pot and then lower the flame. That's not permitted, but you can leave the soup pot on the flame for longer and then lower it so that it doesn't burn it out and it doesn't evaporate. That you can do. So if you want to be able to lower a flame, you have to engineer it in a way that is for the purpose of saving the food that it shouldn't burn or it shouldn't bubble out. So you have to leave the soup pot there long enough to turn off the, turn down the flame and then you know work from there. However, this only applies to a gas range. It does not apply to an electric range. Those can't be switched at all. And even if you have a Shabbos oven, you are not allowed to change the temperature on a Shabbos oven, even though it's in Shabbos mode. You can't push it. No button. Basically, no buttons can be pushed on Yantam, no matter what. Electricity cannot be used on Yantam. Let's talk a little bit about Kabbalah attire. We're not going to be speaking next week. There's an interesting thing I noticed. when. HaKadosh Baruch beginning of Pashas Yisrael, makes the presentation to Klai Yisrael. Moshe Rabbeinu and Klai Yisrael, they arrive at HaSinai. Moshe goes up to HaSinai, and Hashem gives Moshe a very specific message to deliver to Klai Yisrael. And he tells him, use these exact words, don't add, and don't subtract. Say exactly this. And this is what would be called in the business world an opening offer. Hashem makes the following presentation, which is, Interestingly, specifically addressed to men and to women, and women actually going before men. This was an, an, an address not to everybody as a nation, but to each person as an individual, every man and every woman. First, Hashem establishes the relationship. He says, you all witnessed what I did to Mitzrayim and how I gathered you all up on Kanfei Nisharim. The Essa Eschem al Kanfei I carried you on the wings of eagles. What does this mean? This, Rashi explains, is a unique reference to how Hashem gathered Chal together in order that they can all leave Mitzrayim simultaneously, but it wasn't only that. It was a special demonstration of love, which is compared to the way an eagle transports its young, putting itself as a shield between the predator and its children. So, likewise, Hashem, so to speak, put himself in between the Jews and the Mitzrayim. He had the covered and all their arrows and, and rocks that they were throwing and shooting all got stuck in the Ananaha HaKavit. So in this way, HaKadosh Baruch Hu demonstrated his love to Ka So this, again, would be called establishing a rapport, which is the first stage of an opening offer. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu establishes the relationship he has with Ka And then Hashem says, And now, If you'll listen to what I will command you and you'll keep my covenant, my bris, You'll be my most beloved nation of all the nations of the world and that means something because I own the whole world. So the first point Hashem makes is you will be my chosen nation. Simply by listening and keeping the covenant Kali will become the chosen nation chosen by the creator of the world. The next step is The next step is the Goy you will be a kingdom of kaihanim and a holy nation. To, to which Qal Yisrael answered, Qal Hashem Nasa, whatever Hashem commands us, we will do without question, without doubt, and without explanation. Now what's fascinating about this offer is that that's all Hashem said. The only motivation Hashem gave to Qal Yisrael, to accept the Torah is one, they will be Hashem's chosen nation, recently Segula, and two, they will become elevated both in stature Mamlech There'll be nobleman, noblemen, prince, a princely nation. And in holiness, Gai Kaddish, there'll be a holy nation. That was the offer given to Kali That's why they should accept the Torah. Now, we know that the Torah itself, within and in and of itself, is a tremendous gift, its own inherent value. Torah itself should be a motivation to be a macabre. I, I heard this story. It ha- happened in Antwerp, in, in Belgium, in the 70s a girl from the local seminary decided that she wanted to marry someone who would dedicate his life to learning, a quite a younger man, and that was very unusual at the time, anywhere, actually, and particularly over there. So by the Sheva Brachis, the principal of the seminary, whose name was of Orbach, he got up to speak. He asked, Chazal explained the Pasuk, Yikara Hu Mipninim, the Torah is more valuable than diamonds. So Chazal said, diamonds, it doesn't mean diamonds. It means the Torah is more valuable and honorable and elevated than the Kayin Gadol who went lefnai v'lefnim. So when we say Pninim, we don't mean diamonds. We mean lefnai v'lefnim. We mean the Kayen Gadol who went inside the Beis HaMikdash, into the Kad Shei The Torah is more valuable, more honorable, more khashuv than the Kayin Gadol. That's what P'ninem means. So he asked, why don't Chazal just understand the passage very simply? It's straightforward. P'ninem means diamonds. And the Torah is more valuable than diamonds. So he answered in the name of his Rebbe, who was the illustrious Roshleim Zalman, Arbach, that's The passive couldn't compare terror to diamonds. He said, Roshleim Zalman said, imagine you were trying to explain to someone. You're trying to give them an idea of the value of diamonds. You'd say, they're so valuable, they're better than that whole box of cucumbers. So he said, that's a joke. You can't use cucumbers as a measuring stick to, to, to measure the value of diamonds. So likewise, we can't use diamonds to measure tyre That's like cucumbers. The only thing that can be used in the same universe as Tyra, the same plane, is the Kayan Gadol, who went inside the Kedush HaTed That we can say, oh, even though that's so tremendously holy and it's such a tremendously holy person and a holy day and a holy place, and there's so much ruchni, it still doesn't compare to someone who learns Tyra. So as he was saying this, he noticed in the crowd, there was a collection of local Batim, and many of them, were wealthy and all of them were in the diamond business and they were getting uh, they were getting upset they were getting a little antsy so he stopped and he asked um does anybody have a question so one Gavir, one one wealthy person asked raised his hand he says rov with all due respect i think that Rav Shlame Zalman must have never seen a real diamond like we deal with if he had he wouldn't have used diamonds as an analogy to cucumbers so the principal replied, I don't know if Rosh and Zalman ever saw a diamond. You might be right. He could be he never saw a diamond. But one thing I do know, if you would have seen Rosh and Zalman, you wouldn't say what you just said. If you would see seen Roshleim and Zalman and appreciated what Tyra is, you would not have had a question. You would have understood what we're talking about. To Rosh and you couldn't begin to compare Tyra to diamonds. That was nothing. Tyra is the most valuable thing possible. So why does Hashem present Kabbalah Satyra, the offer to give the Tyro with the motivation that it'll make us the chosen nation, an elevated nation, and a holy nation? Why isn't the motivation the Tyra itself, Yukarahimiputinam? I think this is a great thing to think about. And and I could think of many different approaches to this and it's it's a very a very eye-opening concept. Why the presentation of the Tyra was specifically about our value, our self worth that came along with Matan Tira, our status as a nation, our status as Mamlachas Kayin, Amigayi Kachbat. Here's one idea. There's a story that Rav Chaskal Abramsky, how, was trying to convince someone to start wearing tefillin. So the man told him, why don't you teach me all the secrets of tefillin and all the reasons behind it, and then I'll consider, I'll start wearing tefillin. So Rav said, listen, that's not how it works. This is how it works. First you buy tefillin, and you wear them. After you start wearing them for a week, two weeks, a month, then I'll be happy to explain it to you. The man says, but what if I buy them and decide not to keep them? It's very expensive. I don't want to lay out $1,400 for this, you know, gamble. So Haskell assured him, no problem. You buy it. If you don't want to keep it, I'll buy it off him, off you. No problem. So the man starts wearing Tillin And after a few weeks, Rukhaskal bumps into him and he says, hmm, do you still want to learn all the secrets of Tzillin? So the man says, no, you know what? I don't need that anymore. That's the way it works. That's the way it works with Taira and that's the way it works with mitzvahs. Once we have the Taira, now that we've accepted the Taira and we've experienced it and we've learned it and we've experienced the mitzvahs, of course the Taira itself is sufficient motivation. But before someone has the Taira, it's impossible to even explain to them what it means. Like those diamond merchants, they couldn't relate that the Taira was so valuable, that diamonds simply don't measure up. And this person couldn't be explained what filling is all about The Hatshah says, not the way it works. You do it. And once you do it, then you start appreciating it. So Hashem had to offer Kali Yisrael means of motivation. He couldn't tell them the prayer itself. They had no way to understand that. The only motivation he could give them is closeness to Hashem, the elevated status which comes along with associating with Hashem. That was something that Kali Yisrael could relate to because they had already experienced it in their time in the Midbar. They were already living with the man that they had covered in the presence of Hashem. That they could appreciate, but try to explain to them the value of the Torah itself? Impossible. They had to accept it first, and then it was self-explanatory. You see this reflected in the two brachas a person makes when they get an aliyah to the tair. Before Right as they get up, they make the first bracha with Asher, Bochar, Banim, Amim, Benasamon, You chose us from all the nations. You made us the chosen nation, and you gave us your tire. After we lain, we make a different bracha. Asher, Nassamon, Tarras, Emes. You gave us a true Torah, the Chayelim and that gives life to the whole world. So that's exactly what's going on here. The first bracha, before we start learning Torah, we just talk about the fact that we're a chosen nation. That's our motivation. But after we have learned from the Torah and we appreciate the value of the Torah itself, then we make a bl- blessing on the Torah itself. You gave us something that gives life to the whole universe. And that's why Hashem presented it in that way. That's one nice way to understand why the motivation for accepting the Torah was, Am Segula, Mamlachas Kayanim, the Grei Kaddish, have a good Shabbos, a wonderful Yontes.